0: Welcome once again to Radio Pork, the podcast where we discuss, rate, review, rank, analyse Terry Pratchett's Discworld series one book at a time. Or rather, that's what we normally do. We're diverting from that course today, because today we have the honour and the pleasure of being joined by Mark Burrows, who is the author of the upcoming biography, The Magic of Terry Pratchett. How are you, Mark?
1: Hiya. I'm... Hey, Mark, nice to see you. Hi. Oh, and also, I'll...
2: Steve's here, but she's all new to that anyway. <laughs> <laughs> That's that, that, that doesn't require any introduction at this point. Let's focus on Mark. Mark, how are you doing? It's great to have you on here. How are you getting on at I, the moment?
1: I'm good, thank you very much. I went for a run this morning, which, if uh, for anyone that knows me, is astonishing. Like, I am, I am basically an unseen university wizard when it comes to my, like, <laughs> my, my personal habits and habits in almost every way and I uh, but yeah I, I, I got up and went for a run and uh, I'm so I'm feeling quite smug and proud of myself but also absolutely <laughs> knackered <laughs> <laughs>
0: Smug, proud, Perfect. and knackered is a good way to begin a Sunday I'm, <laughs> a, I'm only
2: I'm only two of the three uh, and <laughs> I'll I'll, I'll Let's just generally we're should. smug and knackered as well but the thing is we don't usually have anything to be smug about so it's completely unfounded <laughs> so you know it's uh, like you're going to fit in very well here
0: <laughs> so listeners for uh, for any of you who aren't aware of mark he's a, a journalist musician a comedian i would recommend his victorian team punk band the men that will not be blamed for nothing uh, which is named after the, the jack the ripper graffiti related to graffiti Am I really yeah it's it's the yeah it's written.
1: the the Dalton Street graffiti yeah it's the um it's the only piece of tangible evidence in the Jack the Ripper case was the was the words the men that will not be blamed for nothing written on a wall and a bit of torn apron um the joyous thing about that is, is almost certainly nothing to do with the Jack the Ripper case whatsoever it's just happened to, <laughs> the writing just happened to be by the bit of blood-soaked torn apron um uh, but there was a lot of graffiti in that bit of London so it's better than I guess it could I guess Kevin was here it wasn't <laughs> particularly um, mysterious enough, whereas uh, the Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing, which is such bad grammar it makes no sense. So can nothing <laughs> whatsoever can be de- can uh, be deducted from it, but at least adds a little bit of mystique to the uh, to the Ripper myth- mythos.
0: Yeah, I, I derive all my uh, Ripper knowledge from from Hell by Alan Moore. That's
1: uh, probably what- the best bet, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> it's as likely as anything.
0: I, I only started listening to the band last night um, and and really enjoyed it. Mark's Victorian team punk band, the man that will uh, not be blamed for nothing, would recommend him. He's written for The Guardian, Observer, Drowned it Sound, The Quietus, among uh, many others. And he's written now in The Magic of Terry Pratchett, what I think is the first full biography of Terry Pratchett. I, I couldn't come across it is, any uh, others.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There, there's, um, I mean, technically, there was one that was done about, 15 or so years ago but it was part of like a a series and there's and it was basically just all of the author biographies from the back of book from the back of Pratchett novels stitched together I mean it, it had no level of detail whatsoever it was only stuff from press releases and then there was a book called um called uh Terry Pratchett and the Spirit of Fantasy that came out in 2012 which I thought was a biography but when you read it it's absolutely not it's like about a chapter of biography and the rest is just like literary opinion so this is the first time anyone's ever really dug into it properly Uh, I I, which I couldn't believe I I was I couldn't believe no one had written no one had actually tried to do it before so um, and I was actually delighted no one had tried to do it before because it means I get to be the first person to take advantage of all that and mine gets to be the book about the book against which future ones will be um, will be judged I mean not necessarily. It, my my book won't necessarily be just favourably against them, but it'll certainly be be the one that they it gets judged against.
2: Oh, I wouldn't be too sure about that, Mark. Now, considering myself and Column have both read the book, and I have to say I thoroughly enjoyed it. Like no hyperbole whatsoever. It's what you do an especially good job of. I thought is that you actually channel a lot of Terry Pratchett's sense of humour throughout the work. And just like uh, the nuance in which you examine certain topics and early aspects of his life, I just thought they were phenomenal. So, again, like I said before, we even started the podcast, you should really be very, very proud of it. It's an excellent book. I definitely recommend it to anyone, anyone who's uh, any of our listeners who enjoys a good Terry Pratchett book and would like to know more about him uh it is in absolutely no way a slog it's a very enjoyable read and you will not regret picking it up if you are interested in learning more about the great man himself thank you very much colin would you probably agree (laughs) yeah i enjoyed it almost too much because um i had to (laughs) well
0: well, because i I, I had to that sounds creepy uh yeah. <laughs> Look, which one of us here has, has has a band named after serial killer graffiti, right? Those Absolutely well, those fair in point. houses shouldn't Absolutely show fair point. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, uh, I, I can't remember exactly when it was you sent me the, the PDF of it, Mark, but um I was the 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 work I was doing at the time was sort of like kind of academic grunt work which I won't bore our listeners with. But it sort of meant that like in between a lot of note-taking and, and things like this. I, I just had this time where I would be uh, listening to audio for the purpose of research and could also be reading this book. So I end up flying through it. And then when we arranged to do this interview, I was like, God, it's actually been a while now since I finished it because I read it that <laughs> quick. So I, <laughs> I had to kind of rapidly uh, uh, reacquaint myself with it quite quickly. But you mentioned in, in I, I think it's in the introduction, you say about, similar to what you've said here, that uh, there will uh, hopefully um, and almost inevitably before there are books about Terry Pratchett, you say by by people perhaps closer to him and, and better sourced than you, and they might make up the definitive in, in time the definitive take on Terry Pratchett. But I suppose what what you've done here then in uh, you you're acknowledging the fact that there there may be other biographies about it, but your own biography is not only the first one, but even if dozens of more follow it instead i think it's still more than justifies itself because it's got such a distinct voice and tone to it your use of footnotes which we, we were joking i think before we we began recording about what, what is it a homage is it a rip off of, of terry <laughs> yeah. Pratt himself but as, as a Pratchett reader i absolutely loved it like i i yeah. you know i found mm-hmm. it kind of like matching tone and team perfectly it reminded me of there's a book i've got by a bloke called i think it's joe adamson about the marx brothers and it's written really wittily like almost kind of groucho-esque and without seeming like it's aping the style either it just feels like the perfect appropriate tribute to his subjects and i think what you've done is the same here like the yeah the, 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 the footnotes really show your um voice very well it makes the book so distinct that even if yeah even if there's many more biographies about Harry pratchett yours will be
1: one that is wholly
0: and utterly itself
1: <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, the footnotes thing's interesting because I've I been mean, partly, I've been reading Pratchett since I was 12 years old and I'm 40 next year. So that's a lot. A lot of my sense of humour has developed do I chime with Pratchett books because I have a sense of humour that, that, that chimes with them or has my sense of humour developed because I read Pratchett books? I don't know. But um, my inst- but, but I've been so immersed in his writing for so long that my instinct is always to put footnotes in and always to make them funny. And you can't always put footnotes in. And um, the, I thought this is the one place, the one thing I'm ever going to write where I absolutely and definitely can, can do it. I can be completely unashamed about it and I can make them funny because it's, I can say it's a homage it's i'm just there's even a footnote that says that where um i talk about the technique <laughs> of footnotes and how it's been ripped off a lot over the years then then the footnote i put is just is no this is a homage just cuz um to forego those um those accusations and i just so i knew i'd be able to do it and the other thing though is that it's a biography and like i'm really i'm really glad that you say there's a voice to it cuz i i really wanted there to be but ultimately a biography has to be true to the facts and true to like you have to lead with that lead with the facts it's not my book really it's terry's book it's a book so my voice always had to sit slightly back from telling you the story and the footnotes gave me an opportunity to break out of that because you can't really write a comic biography of, of somebody else anyway so um and but my inclination is always to write jokes so the footnotes gave me the opportunity to do the jokes, to do my voice, to do the thing I like doing without compromising the kind of journalistic integrity of the actual book. I'd, I'd, like, I'd like to thank Terry Pratchett for um, coming up with that <laughs> technique. Because <laughs> I think before Pratchett, most people use footnotes academically, you know, is to give you a little bit of extra mm. information. Um, whereas it was Terry that, that, that pioneered using them to throw in gags. And I very much took that and ran with it.
0: You say in the introduction of the book, uh, you describe it as your chance to meet Terry Pratchett, having missed several chances to meet him during his lifetime. Hmm. Why was it important for you to, to uh, meet him in a way, in this way?
1: Partly because I regretted that I, I I regretted that I never had. Uh, there's a yeah, there's a story I recount in the in the introduction about how um, my friend Dan Schreiber, uh, who is now uh, he presents the um, no such thing as a fish podcast, uh, and used to write for QI and he, he used to produce this radio show called the Museum of Curiosity. And um, I went down a few times to see it recorded. And afterwards, you'd always go to the pub, and a couple of the guests on the show would always come to the pub with you, and you'd find yourself having a pint with them. Like I met Jonathan Miller as a result of um going to the museum museum of curiosity recording and i don't know if you know who jonathan miller is but he's uh, one of the guys who did who pioneered um beyond the fringe the 1960s uh, classic um sketch review with um, alan bennett and peter cook and dudley moore and people like that and it's and um the guy was like a intellectual Titanic powerhouse and I got to meet him and feel like a dwarf. i like, absolutely feel <laughs> like I like like he was very nice to me. But I was so I knew I'd get to go I might get to meet him if I, I might get to meet Terry if I went down to the recording. Um but I also thought, well, you know, he's an older man. He's not well. He's this is this is a few years after the Alzheimer's diagnosis. So I was like he's probably not gonna go to the pub. And then I can't for the life of me remember why I couldn't go. It must have been a good reason, because obviously like I must have had a good reason not to go. So But I, I didn't go to the recording and the next day, because me and Dan worked together um, on a comedy website we were both involved with. And um, and um he's like, Oh yeah, he was so nice. We went down to the pub afterwards with uh, his assistant, Rob Wilkins. And we all had a, and we had a chat and he was telling all these dirty jokes and it was Dan and Robert are still really good friends from that night. And so <laughs> I missed my chance. I, I completely, I, I completely missed my chance. And and it's like I can you can queue up and get it and get a book signed and that's brilliant I've done that with people before but I was kind of like now I'll always be like I miss the chance to meet meet somebody not on a professional level not on a fan mm-hmm. not on a fan like um, artist level or interview an interview journalist subject level I missed my chance to meet him on a bloke in a pub level and I'm never going to get anything as good as that again so I really wanted to write the story because I kind of felt I had to make up for that experience I had to like I wasn't ever gonna get that contact that proper contact again so let's see if I can get to know Terry through learning as much about him as I can so that was one of the reasons I wanted to write it and it's uh and I feel like I did I think I think I you know I, I I'll never know if I really do know the real man but i get, I guess I've got now I've got a head canon Terry Pratchett that feels <laughs> it feels like I know
2: do you feel like um because you didn't meet him, do you think that worked in the book's favour? Because, you know, one a singular meeting of one person can really influence how you feel about that person overall. So if you had met him, say, that one night in the pub, it might have influenced um, the quality of the work that you inevitably produced. Or do you think that that wouldn't have been a problem? Um, it would have depended how it went.
1: <laughs> but, of course, um, yeah. but actually, that's
2: <laughs> a really good point. One of the things I wanted to do
1: with the book was because i know rob wilkins is writing the official terry pratchett biography and because terry was right was working on his autobiography for the last five years of his life i imagine a lot of there'll be a lot of pratchett actual of actual pratchett first hand writing in it as filled um with rob doing stuff too and i was like so i'm never going to be able to write that's always going to be the definitive take that's always going to be the definitive version so what i can do is is the journalistic version? What I, I like, there's nerdy details in mine that I doubt will be in Terry's. Terry's will have per, <laughs> like Rob's will have personal stuff that I could never know um, and should never know uh, because, like, I because I wasn't in those rooms. You know, it, um, I don't know Lynn Pratchett. I don't know Rihanna Pratchett. Like, I don't, I won't have that level of intimacy. So, what I could do was something that was immaculately researched, that was. Um, you know, yeah, had journalistic integrity that, uh, that, that kind of took the facts. And if I was being a bit harsher about it, if it was somebody I was less fond of or something, it also, you know, an official biography is is the party line isn't it? An official biography is the, is what they want you to think about somebody whereas um, the thing about doing an unofficial biography is that you, you're not beholden to that so you can find out the truth. Now if it had been a more controversial figure or somebody less likeable then it could have been then you know I'd have had the freedom to explore darker bits and stuff. Now it never occurred to me I would find anything like that but it, it meant that I've got more journalistic freedom and I think if I'd known Terry I wouldn't have had that one remove that enabled me even though he's an author i'm very fond of and um and i wanted to be uh, right something that was very warm and affectionate it did mean that I was all I. I could still do it with my kind of my journalist professional head on, rather than my raving fanboy head. Although that does that does crop up quite a bit. Uh, raving fanboy head. I think might be the name of my next band. Um, uh, <laughs> nice. And um, you know, I could I, so I I I could do something that was a little bit that that had that that little bit of journalistic difference. And I think if I'd met if I had really met him, maybe I wouldn't have had that because the book doesn't. It's it's affectionate and i think i like to think terry comes out of it well it's not a puff piece it's not a um you know it's not yeah it's not hagiographic exactly it's not it, it's it I, I i challenge him on stuff and i i take into account you know his like his flaws and his snippiness and and things like that so and his tendency to make stuff up <laughs> <laughs> yeah so <laughs> i'm
2: glad you brought that up that was something that um i just wanted to mention that i i i really really enjoyed and appreciated how you tackled that particular subject because i had heard this before that terry Pratchett was known to sometimes you know make some things up to make a story more story like yeah he gave his anecdotes i love it yeah exactly and this is the thing because like you said like it's not a puff piece it is very journalistic so you highlight this and you underline this but you can tell that there's affection there and you can see that like there isn't re- there isn't like any like malice in that act because anytime he does it he's like he's he's entertaining he yeah. is an entertainer by like by occupation so i i, I just thought that was a um, very good he wasn't a liar like there's a nugget, like he gave his stories and anecdotes a spin
1: even the ones the ones he repeated like some of them he, he probably repeated so that, like he even said sometimes the the thing about uh when he quoted his first boss in his job in his job interview saying um i like the cut of your jib and then they'd usually say um, the last recorded, the last recorded example of, of somebody saying that in Britain, or the last recorded example of somebody saying that without being a resident.
2: And he actually admitted later that he
1: now can no longer remember if, if that happened, or if it's something that he'd made up because it was a better story. And I think so he'd um, told some of those, those stories so much that uh, he wasn't sure where the truth was anymore, and that so you, had, you kind of had to have that focus. In your that that in the back of your mind when reading anything that any bit of information that came out of a Pratchett interview, I always had to go like sometimes I'm I'm just a bit suspicious of it. Like there's a time when he he was he said he was interviewed in uh, the when he was still working for the Central Electricity Generating Board in the uh, early '80s, but his career was taken off as a writer. Where in the same week he was interviewed by the same journalist from the Western Daily Press twice, once about being um, a fantasy author and once about the dangers of nuclear power the journalist couldn't believe it was the same person he was interviewing and like it's such a neat fact that you kind of have to go did that happen i don't know but like when i talk about it in the book i I, you know what what you can say is well we don't know the byline of the of the journalist western daily press we can find the byline of the of the interview but western the western daily press didn't put bylines on news reports so we'd never know that and i tried to track him down but i couldn't when things like that come up particularly when the inconsistencies come up all i can do is lay out both sides and go well this is what terry said happened this is what i've found out decide for yourselves which tra- which leg of the trousers of time you'd like to live in because either either the one where the polished version happened or the one that the facts support i don't really mind you know take take your pick yeah and i didn't know that about him when i started when i started researching the first time i c- came up across something where i was like that's that contradicts what somebody else says here and then so yeah it's a, it became an interesting thing but it, it also became a through line through the book about what about choose the version of reality you want to believe uh and i actually really like that as a, as a kind of as a theme that got that runs through it
2: yeah i do think that terry's ownership of that the fact that like you said that he acknowledges that he couldn't remember in in that particular instance whether he said i like to cut your jib or whether it was something he made up it's his ownership of that that i personally think is particularly charming the fact that like he knows himself that he's just putting a nice polish on it so that that's just my personal opinion, yeah. but I'm sure quite a lot of readers probably would feel that, the same. There was never any malice in it. Like sometimes he just simplified stories.
1: Um, sometimes he just made them funnier. Like a good example is um, the party line version of how Terry got his his first publishing deal. The story he told and the story that he's written in black and white on the letters he used to send to people that were like he had this sheet called the Terry Pratchett Answers, where basically he, he identified all the common questions that people sent to him uh in fan mail particularly in the 90s by school kids and so sometimes he'd just write out a short handwritten reply and then include this fact sheet and this in black and white states that terry got his book deal by going through the yellow pages finding a local publisher calling them up sending him the manuscript to the carpet people and they agreed to publish it that's the party line what actually happened, if you talk to Colin Smythe, is that Terry was working as a journalist. He interviewed a publisher about a book they had coming out. He became friends with them. He used to hang around with them loads. He gained their trust. And ju- and when he felt that they were comfortable enough with him, uh, he went, oh, by the way, I've written a book. Would you have a look at it? Like, it's a very... it's That's not Looking them up in the Yellow Pages. That's that 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 yeah. was like he he became friends with these people before he asked them to ask them if they'd publish his book. But which version of that story is more fun? Unfortunately, as a biographer, my responsibility is to give you the full the full facts. And what's going to be really interesting is to see if Rob's book does the same thing. Or how how often it sticks to Terry's version of events, and then, of course there'll be lots of times when it's impossible. It'll be impossible to know if everyone in the room when whatever event happened is is dead now, so you'll never know. And I find that really, I find that really interesting. But all I could do was come up with a. With, with, all I can do is is research as thoroughly as I could, and say here here's what I found out. Decide for yourself.
0: In the course of your research and the stuff you found out for the book, has has any of it changed the way you,
1: you know, read uh, over Terry Pratchett's books when you're just rereading them yourself for pleasure? Yes and no. It's not coloured my view of Terry at all. Like Learning about him more more about his life hasn't changed my perception of who he was as a writer, how much I love his work. Uh, my affection for his for his body of work and for him as a person, so it doesn't colour my my views. It's not like I kind of go, oh, now I know he was an absolute bastard, so this suddenly this bit of writing feels a bit weird to me. Nothing like that happened. But what it does do, which I think, it, which I really like, is that I now can see references and themes uh, that chime with stuff that happened to him in his life that I I wouldn't have noticed before. Just going and going, oh, that happened. That actually happened to Terry in the 70s. And then just kind of... That's really nice. Picking up a reference to the folklore and mythology of the hair, of hairs in I Shall Wear Midnight, which I know you were telling me earlier you haven't read yet, but there's, there's a load of stuff about the mythology of hairs, that's in, you know, large rabbits, not follicles. And I found... A book review that terry had written in 1974 called the leaping hare about the history and folklore of hares hares in rural tradition so you know you kind of see that and you go oh he squirreled that bit of information away and just just you know popped it in his head and he knew it it was in the back of his head and then one day whilst writing the story it surfaced again at the right point there's a bit of dialogue in the shepherd's crown that is uh, word for word um, something he overheard someone say in a pu- in the pub in the 70s and wrote uh, wrote about it in one of his features so it's really nice seeing those things and when you you know about his childhood like realizing that good omens is like the them in good omens that's Terry's childhood when he describes how they hung out when he describes the the wood they played in um the village they lived in that he was describing his own childhood i know he was uh, there's there's a good pinch of just william in there but uh, like the chalk pits and the um, I think it's called Hogback Wood in Good Omens, and but there's a there's a corresponding wood in near Forty Green where he grew up near Beaconsfield and it's so you it's really nice to see those those little chiming things. So actually, it's a uh, I think it's kind of enriched my my reading. And you'd think I'd stop reading, by the way. You'd think I'd be absolutely sick of it, but um, the other day. I was rereading the Discworld map, <laughs> just oh wow, amazing! <laughs> just because I, I was like, I haven't, you know what? I haven't read that, read the the, the narrative stuff in that for ages. I'm just going to pick it up. So, you know, my book, my my bookshelf behind me is my Pratchett collection.
2: If you don't mind me asking, um, so. As you said, you haven't stopped reading it. Of all the Discworld books, which would you say is your favourite, just out of curiosity,
1: uh, if you had to choose one? The stock answer I always give to this is Nightwatch, because I think Nightwatch is a masterpiece. I genuinely think it's a, an absolutely astonishing book. It's it's livid and angry, and but it's also, but it's also very tender and it's clever... It says a lot about history and about people and about class, and it's. I think it's a, a, an absolute masterpiece. Um, it's Neil Gaiman's
2: favorite as well, apparently. I don't know if you've seen our list here, but uh, it's actually our favorite as well. <laughs> I mean, quite rightly, it's just a. It's it's just a really
1: really good book. Um, so that's the that's the one I usually say, but occasionally I can. I'm, I'm fond of most of them, and occasionally like I'll i really love monstrous regiment i really love i shall wear midnight sometimes i'm like do you know what there's mort is perfect there's nothing out of place in Mort. it's an absolute it's an absolute clockwork piece of writing it's all all the pieces tick together brilliantly and it's a really lovely linear like streamlined plot and and that was a really early one i think guards guards is amazing it's so so funny the joke rate in guards Guards*. so it depends what you're after and what day it is. But the official answer, I think is still Nightwatch.
0: Steve is gloating about this because we had a massive <laughs> argument when we'd we done, well, not so much when we done Mort, I think because it was the fourth one, it, it, you know, we, we were sort of building a ranking of the books as we go along mm-hmm. and Mort inevitably was the fourth one was first, but later Steve would always fight for it, not being uh, knocked off its perch by other books. And for me, it was always the end <laughs> of it that, that let it down. Like that, uh, I what was that? Uh, that says I like talk with a god and sorted of things out. was <laughs> like, you know, it's yeah, a, it's a way to a rush it's like he'd never do that later. But um, the great thing about it, within a series of sorts in in, in the disc world is you do have so much variety there that you kind of have like different books for different moods, as it were. or You know, different experiences you want to you want to feel or or concepts you want to to get to grips with. What was what surprised you most in the course of your research just about uh, Terry Pratchett and, and his work and the uh, reception and and evolution of of his work? That's the...
1: I mean, nothing shocks me. If I kind of, if you if you've read, I mean, a, a lot of people will say, you know, if you want to know Terry Pratchett, read his books, and that is true. Like nothing shocked me about about him. Um, nothing really surprised me. There are little cool, there are little cool facts I learned. I was like, well, I guess, were little surprises. The the extent to which he could. To which he could spin a yarn was was an eye-opener because i didn't know quite how far um he he could go with making stuff up a good example of that is there's a reference to him writing him working in a shed at the uh, bath evening chronicle the newspaper he worked for in the late 70s and he he's in the introduction in a slip of keep slip of the keyboard to a bit of writing from that era and in the introduction to uh a short story in a blink of the screen where he talks about how he used to write on a shed in a shed on the roof at, at the paper and because it's there in black and white you take his word for it nobody who works with terry at the time remembers a shed <laughs> like nobody does like <laughs> it's when you and then when you go well actually thinking about it that is weird why would that? Why would he have worked in a shed on the roof? But you took it. it took his word for it. Um, and quite how blatant he could be about that sort of stuff that surprised me a bit. But but it also kind of delighted me. So I don't really mind um, because you know just seeing somebody somebody just exploding with ideas and just deciding to create reality as they wanted it is is wonderful. But nothing shocked me at all. And nothing. There was no. There was no big surprises. And there was no big hidden secrets. There's no skeletons in the closet. Apart from like the one with the blue glowing eyes, that's quite friendly. Uh, although he was scared of skeletons, that's an interesting that's an interesting fact I found out. He had a fear of skeletons as a child. But yeah, nothing. So nothing shocked me. No.
0: Yeah, this isn't a clickbaity book where uh, you know, in its immediate aftermath of its release, we'll have articles on. um you know, a website saying, like, 10 things we learned about Terry Pratchett's from Mark hell all autobiography. Yeah. But, I think but he I, I...
1: You probably can find 10 things you'll learn. Hopefully, you can find more than 10 things you'll learn about Terry Pratchett, but um, mm. but none of them are scandalous. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. This is, sorry, what I meant to say about that is, like, it's, uh, I think the experience of reading it is, you, what you say about, Knowing Pratchett, true knowing his work is true, but in reading your book, I think it's enriching um, as opposed to like yeah, air chatteringly
1: exactly. revelatory in that way. And that was all it ever—that's all it ever would, could really be, because he was actually very private. And without, I talked to some people who knew him well. I, I, I you know, I, I talked to some people who'd known him for years. What they told me was never particularly different from the impression you had of him from reading his work. But he was very private, and there were sides to him that. We don't know about because they were never shown to the public, so i don't i don't i don't and I don't want to speculate about anything like that. I didn't see anything that suggests anything like that, but we literally don't know what he was like at home on his own because we weren't there, and maybe that'll be that kind of thing will will pop up in robsboro but i would be very surprised if there was anything there that that would be an eye opener i the 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 Pratchett I found in my research was the Pratchett I had read in his work they really really was the same man if he had other facets to him which i'm sure he did yeah and i and i say in the book he'd be, that he, he could be snippy he could be a bit be a bit grumpy with people and stuff like that that that's true but yeah i'm i think the uh by and large if you've read his work you do know his personality from what i've from what i can tell with the caveat that i didn't know
2: him so um Mark, you're obviously, like ourselves, you're a very big fan of Terry Pratchett and his work. So with that probably uh, comes a bit of um, knowledge regardless, like without even any research. You just happen mm. to know some things. So knowing that and going into like uh, the research for this book and starting to write it, were there any myths or misconceptions from the general public that you really wanted like, to dispel or acknowledge or anything like that in in this? I wanted to
1: be very true to this to the um because i knew i knew it was an interesting story like before from just from what i know of terry just from having read interviews with him over the years you know just from having a passing interest in his life as a fan i know the story of his the rough we all if you're a fan of terry and you've read his you've read a few interviews and you know a bit about him. You know the rough shape of his life. You know he was a journalist. You know that he worked in PR for the power industry. You know that he then became a successful author. You know the stuff he's interested in. You know um, about his illness and you know how he died. Like, you you know that shape. And I knew that was a good story to tell. So, but what what I wanted to do was be really, really faithful about it. I don't think there's misconceptions. But I wanted to make sure that what I what I was writing was really... Was really true. I think the end of his life is a really good example of that because uh, I've seen quite a lot of people talk about how his later books you can see his disease having an effect on his writing and things like that. And I'm not sure that's the case. I'm, I genuinely am not sure that's the case. I think that Shepherd's Crown feels a little bit unfinished, but that's because The Shepherd's Crown was unfinished like it was he it didn't get its final polish and i wanted to, to so i wanted to be very careful and very respectful about how terry was still a creative force right up to like the end of 2014 you know, he was coming uh, he came up with the this beautiful staggeringly imaginative section for um uh, the long cosmos the the last book of the long earth series that he wrote with Stephen baxter in the in the summer of 2014, he came up with that. Through they'd finished the book, but Baxter went to his house and to work on it a bit more and check he was at, and check that he was okay with some of the edits. And Terry just came out with his with his idea. I think we should do this here, and it's a beautiful science fiction idea, really, like about giant trees, and uh, it's one of the best bits in the book. And you know, he was and he came up with that basically six months before his capacity his disease removed his capacity to work at all and at that but at that point he was still a strong creative force he still wrote really well he still he could still write and be very funny a lot of fans know that already i don't think i'm removing misconceptions for hardcore pratchett fans but i think people with a casual interest may have thought may may have seen him as a bit more doddery than he really was in the later years of his life. Not that he was that his illness wasn't taking an effects, um, and the progression of it is pretty clear. But there were, but he was still there, and I wanted, I and I felt like I owed it to him to show that. So yeah, that was the, that was the main thing. But I don't think people had pre- misconceptions or pre- uh, preconceptions, maybe, but certainly not misconceptions. I don't think there are people who know a bit about Terry's life who have got it wrong, and partly because he was very he curated our view of him very carefully. Uh, he, cre- he, cre- he created this image of himself, particularly as he started to get more famous. You know, the, it was the thing about the black, about, about the man in, black, in the black hat and the black leather jacket. Like he created this version of the Terry Pratchett that, we show- that he showed to people. And really it was just an exaggeration. Like his anecdotes, it was an exaggeration of the truth. It wasn't, it wasn't that wasn't not him uh, he was a little bit more sensitive and snippy, I think, behind the scenes, but that was still, was still pretty much him, but he created this version of him that we saw. It was very carefully created, but I think it was still close to the, at least close to the man that I feel like I, I discovered through through the work.
0: It's interesting what you say about the the perception of him as uh, his, his work declining on, uh, on to his illness in his later years. It's certainly something I've heard a lot, and I had said to you before we um, began recording that we're we're coming up on Wintersmith in our chronological read-through of the Discworld books, and, and some of the later ones I hadn't read before, so I've actually left them unread until we reach them for the podcast. Mm. Uh, and, and prior to Wintersmith, we had done Tud, which had actually, you know, we hadn't eviscerated it or anything, but it had featured, you know, relatively lowly in our overall list. We thought it was a bit, you know, it sort of lacked for a bit direction, but so far in Wintersmith, I mean, there's kind of like a just an incredible strength of team and direction and kind of playfulness with, with, uh, with dialogue and with concepts, there seems like no lack of energy there. So it's certainly something I'm, I'm very curious to uh, explore as, as we go ahead and, and I'll be keeping in mind what you've said here and what, and what we read in the book that, uh, the easy narrative of, you know, as he, as he got, uh, as he got older and is, um, Alzheimer's affected more, he is work naturally declined, Perhaps isn't as cut and dried as some people would present it.
1: Yeah, I think I, th- I mean, I think he reaches a peak in the early two thousands, the the peak of his writing. And I think his illness stopped him from stopped that peak from continuing on an upward curve. That's I t- charitably I would say that. Uh, I think Nightwatch, going postal, um Monstrous Regiment, Amazing Maurice um the tiffany books their nation especially their masterpieces they that's the strongest his writing would be and after that it's not that i don't think there was a decline um i don't think he continued to get better at the same rate i think i think you can share i think that to the people who say he's he declined, that's the the bone i'll throw them but the books are still very good snuff is great i like snuff is a real snuff is as like compelling and intricate and clever and fierce uh, a Vimes book as anything else he wrote, you know, Um I really like raising steam, a lot of people don't, but I, I, I'm, I'm very fond of it. Some people don't have problems with The Long Earth, but then again, I think that that's about a literature, that's a taste in literature thing, that it's not a comic fantasy book series, The Long Earth, it's a science fiction series, and they, they do dip a bit in the middle, I think they slightly overreach themselves, but I'm not sure that's necessarily um an alzheimer's related issue um no i i think the quality at least maintained the shepherd's crown is not the strongest of his books but it wasn't but it wasn't finished no he it 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 needed more work so that's um that so yeah i i honestly don't feel like the impact of his disease on his writing is as profound as i've certainly seen some fans say
2: it is that's the great thing i think about terry pratt so um i think the reason that we started doing our podcast like the very the very root of it was why don't we just like rank all the books you know and see like which is the best which is the worst blah blah blah. and anytime we're debating a book about whether or not like this deserves to be higher this deserves to be lower there's always the caveat at the end he's like uh if we didn't particularly like this book we're like but it's still miles ahead of like so many other mm. books, you know, I think the lo- the lowest one we have on the list, um, which might be a little unjust now is actually Eric. But the reason for that is both myself and Colin, we read the version with no illustrations, which does detract mm. a lot from that, as you mentioned in your book as well. I think yeah. after that, we have The Color of Magic, which, to be fair, is the very, very first Discworld book where he's finding his feet. And it's mm. still... A monumental success of a book it's just when you compare yeah. it to everything else that's the only reason that you're going to have to rank it lower and that's the only reason mm. that we found and i think the light fantastic is really good i think um there's a real
1: leap from a uh- the sort of setting up of the tone in the world and the color of magic to the the solid narrative of the light fantastic. I actually, I really like, I've always really read the light fantastic. I think it's a slightly maligned book. Even like, I don't like sorcery very much. I'm quite clear in the book about, I don't think sorcery is that good. And Terry didn't like sorcery very much. I think it, re- yeah, it recycles the character arcs from the light fantastic. It's a little bit overly complicated. It's a bit unfocused. That said, sorcery is really funny. Mm. Like yeah. it's re- like every, there are probably more jokes per page in that book than any other Pratchett book of the era uh, of that. Uh, it's um it's like the pinnacle of the comic fantasy. And if you come to it without reading the light like, fantastic, I think maybe I'd be a little bit more um, generous with it. And if it had come earlier, but it's, such a funny book it's the jokes are brilliant and his comic voice was still was 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 accelerating so there's always things to enjoy i actually quite like eric i think the thing you just have to take it is, is it's a light it's a lighter story it's not meant to be you know there's not really meant to be much of a character arc to certainly rinse doesn't have a character arc in that book at all eric sort of does it's really just an excuse to gad about the disc looking at stuff which
2: most rinse books are it's funny actually you say um, about sorcery how you, you don't rate it very highly but it's one of the funniest books and you'd probably rank uh, Nightwatch as the highest and you say in uh, your biography that it has notably less uh, jokes in it than the others so maybe you just hate jokes. <laughs> maybe i just hate jokes maybe you don't like <laughs> laughter to be honest yeah and that
1: does tap into my self-loathing persona as well <laughs> thing is there are good jo- there's there are good jokes in nightwatch mm. there are there are, like nightwatch has got some really funny bits mm. all, right, all the stuff with Nobby is great yeah oh yeah, the, yeah um yeah. the the putting the ginger at the ox um, which i've since i've since th- worked out uh Having read um, an, an old interview that I'd found recently, um, I think it's actually a reference to um, Axel Foley putting the banana at the exhaust pipe of the car in Beverly Hills Cop. Mm, possibly uh, because he because he said after seeing it that he wished he'd seen Beverly Hills Cop before he wrote Guards Guards because he would have written that into Guards Guards. Yeah, I, uh, so I think it. I think he finally got that finally got that reference in, but in a much cleverer way and then he would have done earlier a lot there's a lot of funny stuff in um in nightwatch particularly if you've seen lemis um because uh, there's 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 a lot of um, all the barricade stuff is straight out of lemis um so it becomes a lot funnier when you when if you've seen it
0: one of the most uh, fascinating aspects of the book i found is how you trace the evolution of mainstream critical opinions of pratchett how he moved from being regarded mm. as a curiosity to a sort of capable hack to a genuine genre heavyweight uh you have that very notable part where a baffled boris johnson is interviewing him and and can't account for his (laughs) success which uh is one of many Mm. items on a long list of things boris johnson can't account for
2: but (laughs) (laughs) do do you feel in a way
0: i mean uh, given we we began this by saying how how you were so surprised when when you uh, came to this book that this was the first biography of uh of Terry Pratchett. Do you feel he, he still is underrated to an extent in in the literary establishment or the or the the, pre, um, the media assessment of art and culture?
1: Less so than was at some point, that it was thought at one point, but I think it's still there. I mean, there was a very famous example a few months after he died, a Guardian critic called Jonathan Jones, who was an art critic, not a, not a literary critic at all, but I, I worked at the Guardian at the time, and he was allowed to um he was allowed to self publish blogs because he was the Guardian's lead art critic. Uh so his pub his blogs didn't get subbed or um or read by editors or anything. And he wrote this blog about how he didn't get why why everyone was so upset about Terry Pratchett who wrote basic pot boilers. And then he admitted to have never written uh never read a Pratchett book. And people were livid, it caused such a stink. I was at the Guardian at the time. Mostly because like a lot of literary journalists Particularly, the people who worked in the book section of the Guardian were Pratchett fans. So um, there was a lot of people just going, oh, typical Guardian." They're like, "No, not typical Guardian. No one at the Guardian thinks this. This one guy who doesn't even review books thinks this." And he even said he'd never read any of his books, but it just goes—it just shows you what the perception, what the perception of his work was to people. And I think that there are there will always be a strata of that. I mean, there are people who dismiss anything popular as as lightweight. That's literary snobbery for you that's 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 art snobbery for you Uh, people you know oh well people who go i'm now trying to think of a musical example beyonce is a really good beyonce is a really good example and just dismiss beyonce as being a lightweight r&b singer when actually when you delve into particularly her last couple of records rich narratively interesting emotionally heavy and musically there's loads of really loads of ideas and you know this is complicated interesting music but there are still people who go oh beyonce that's that pop singer so uh, there's always going to be that but i i think terry secured his place in the literary pantheon by the end i think um particularly that run of books in the early 2000s to up until pretty much up until his death like those are literary like force of nature strong books that deserved the weight they got he always hated the fact that he wasn't taken seriously. It, it was one of the things that he was a lot more... Uh, he would laugh off in the press, but he re- it really did sting um, that he wasn't taken seriously. And every single book he revoked... Always, every single book he, he he published, somebody would be dismissive and sniffy about it. Um, but then that, that was the case for his entire career. And I, I think he managed to secure a place that he now won't lose and I actually think his his reputation will only increase as time goes on um, because I think those books will stand I think they'll stand the test of time there is I think if you read the early discworlds and that was it which it's very difficult to to appreciate outside of the context of the time they were they were published in and what they were trying to say it's only the fact that he was very good at character that makes them still work like a lot a lot of the jokes in the color of magic and the light of fantastic will go over most people's heads because they haven't read a bunch of the
0: of uh, and a Grey like Mouse,
1: very... or at, uh, Conan the Barbarian. Yeah, and things, exactly. So... All... Yeah, exactly. I, I all found that, stuff.
0: that oddly refreshing because I found reading it, uh, uh, maybe it was the awareness of I know what this is trying to satirize, and I haven't read a lot of what it's trying to satirize, but I found it almost like an introduction to that whole sword and sorcery, Dungeons and Dragons yeah. influenced <laughs> post Tolkien fantasy that I thought, like oh, I could see him satirizing it, and there's probably a lot of it that's worth satirizing, but he also makes me want to go and read some of it now.
1: Yeah, because he loved it. He lo- <laughs> like, Terry was a nerd for his entire life. He was an absolute nerd. He never stopped being a geek. Like, he never... he Like, the the original impetus for the Discworld was to sort of take potshots at the worst fantasy. But most of the references were to the good stuff. Like, he loved fantasy. He, he, always, he never stopped defending fantasy as a genre. Although, as many authors do, it's very common with authors to stop reading fiction... When you write novels, it just that's that's something a lot of authors do, and that happened with Terry as well. But he didn't read very much fiction as he got older, but um, he never stops. You know, he's one of his favourite films was Aliens. I, <laughs> he he always wanted a put There was one point where he said he one of one of the things he wanted most in the world was a pulse rifle from Aliens. Like he never stopped being a nerd, so he kind of got it, and he 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 was okay with that. Avert fantasy satire sort of stops. Kind of five or six books in, anyway, but those, but the the stuff he was satirizing when he actually is a really like is avert when you can tell what the reference comes from. That's always something that's quite good. Uh, That's so it's uh it's an affectionate thing. So you know, I I don't think he ever looked down on that. He was he. The, the, as a book there's a point, a period of his life, he said, as a boy, where he couldn't resist buying a book with a
2: dragon on the cover. I <laughs> can definitely relate to that. Absolutely, I had that face too. <laughs> do you think um, so? Um, the way uh, fantasy and fantasy comedy, the way they're regarded now, do you think that has changed a lot since um, the time when Terry was still struggling to get out of the niche of the fantasy writer? Do you think it has had a massive change in perspective from the general media or do you think it's still kind of in that space where there are some exceptions such as for example terry pratchett jk rowling philip pullman etc etc it depends if you're talking about fantasy or comic fantasy
1: i think fantasy as a jo fantasy as a as a genre is now and i think it's more rowling than anything else but uh, although recently she has had her uh, re- recently yeah, she's yeah. kind of had the shine taken off up yeah, her, yeah, a yeah, bit. absolutely but um i think fa- i think fantasy is now regarded as an ex- like jk rowling made fan did i said say this in the book but jk rowling did something that terry had failed to do he she made fantasy cool like she made she made like pratchett novels if you were a 15 year old pratchett Terry, there was still a pratchett kind of stigma the stigma of the fantasy reader, and if you, it's in a lot of the press in the mid '90s. Of it's real ale stuff, is what Tom Paulin said on um, on uh, Newsnight review. It's still seen as a bit fantasy is still seen as a bit naff by the mid '90s. I think what that why a fantasy boom of the early 2000s late 90s early 2000s did is it it may it made it cool for kids for kids to read fantasy no one was teasing a kid at school because they were reading his dark materials you know no one was to te- or artemis Fowl or something like that it became it became cool uh, and i don't think that's gone away i think that's now here to stay i think now people although it's a very specific type of fantasy the high fantasy stuff, like Dragon Riders of Pern and um, and Chronicles of. Uh... Is it Chronicles of uh, Thomas Covenant and like oh, that yeah, yeah. that kind of high fantasy stuff? That's still not cool. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's still like, like David David Eddings is still not cool. Um, I love but, David Eddings. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, those books don't haven't aged well. I read I reread them a few years ago. I reread all of the, I reread the full Bulgarian, um series, all twelve books, and they are, yeah they don't quite hold up. Ooh. I was a bit disappointed by it. <laughs> I, um, in fact, all of the characters are deeply irritated
2: Oh, I haven't read it in over ten years, so I'll need to go back to it in some
1: yeah, stage. Yeah, don't enjoy, enjoy, enjoy your memories That's probably best. Like enjoy it. Uh, continue, enjoy thinking that Bograth and Polgara are nice, likable people <laughs> and not so and irritating, which is what. <laughs> it turns out they are um or, but yeah robert jordan's wheel of time is another example like people read this stuff it's still really widely read i don't think that high fantasy stuff is is, is ever going to be cool and nor should it be i think it deserves its place for good and for bad because um you know it's as an as a kind of outsider form and i like that about it i don't think that should change um but i think for books about fantasy is the same as you know no one looks down on horror now no one looks down because Stephen king made horror except made brought horror to the mainstream i think terry with jk rowling and philip pullman made fantasy a and j and um and yeah look and uh game of thrones as well like, like don't overlook the influence of game of thrones which is like completely uh which is a complete like unashamed unabashed fantasy series it is as fantasy it gets it's dragons and swords in fact I, I know a big undercurrent to the criticism of how the tv show finished
0: was that they they were uh, loath to commit to some of the fantasy elements of the book that mm. might have kind of made it more yeah uh, coherent or, or meaningful I, I i find that fascinating in the book when you talk about almost this level of moral panic around fantasy like you have these critics talk about Pratchett's popularity and saying things like oh this used to be stuff only heavy metal listeners and Dungeons and Dragons players listen yeah. to and now <laughs> like you know teachers are telling children just, <laughs> uh, like, <laughs> so, like what's the world coming to and
1: there's a very telling um thing that I found because uh, Only You Can Save Mankind the first of the of uh, the uh Johnny Maxwell books which I loved uh, I always loved those it was nominated for the Guardian's children's award for children's literature in the year it came out and uh, the guardian wrote up the discussions around around it i I found i i I found the article and what's very telling is they all talk about how much they loved only you can save mankind how their kids loved it and then there's a like almost like a pause where somebody says it's a good book but is it good literature Mm-hmm. And you're kind of like oh I, like red how do you how can he win? <laughs> yeah. And only you can save mankind is is a contemporary set book. It's the closest thing to magical yeah. realism. Though the Johnny Mike's war books are the closest thing to what what Terry always dismissed as magical realism, which he said always said was like, you know, fantasy with a is fantasy fantasy with a clever hat on. Mm. I like, it's <laughs> they weren't they because I think they couldn't see past the Pratchettness of it and that changed later that perception changed like the 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 panel that awarded the amazing morrison's educated rodents the carnegie carnegie medals carnegie or carnegie I, I i've heard both um actually described it as an outstanding feat of literature so you go from it's a good book but is it literature to it's an outstanding feat of literature but it took writing it, but it took it, it took writing children's books to even be in those conversations because you can smuggle those ideas past the um the gatekeepers in the guise of children's books i th- I think he um he, oh, I've forgotten the point i was making now but <laughs> yeah he was it was it's 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 interesting how those perceptions changed
0: you, you talk about too is uh how he had trouble for a while finding appreciation in america not only with with people uh within publishing companies and, and attempts to like i know this he he another story he was fond of telling was that the guys from was it like Disney trying to adapt Mort and saying you know we just got to lose this death angle. <laughs> I, know I don't it think to...
1: I don't think that was Disney. Disney did attra- attempt to attract to to, to adapt Mort, but that was in the that was in the early two thousands. It was Holly. It, so it's it's, a, it's like meaningless Hollywood exec a that said that in the yeah. in the 80s like can we cu- can we cut the death angle from more uh, which is absolutely astonishing and then terry was livid when bill and ted's bogus journey came out <laughs> like a, few, a year later it was just like see <laughs> see <laughs> um more and more is the great the disney version of more is the great missed opportunity oh stop I, because i would love to have seen that mm. Um, and for those that don't know, this is, this is something I didn't know about. This is something that surprised me. Although it's it's not unknown. Um, Helen O'Hara, who wrote... There's a film journalist who wrote the... Uh, who wrote the forward for the book. She knew about this. She'd actually talked to the... Ron Clements and... I can't remember the other director's name. But the Disney directors who directed Aladdin and Hercules and Moana. Before After they did The Princess and the Frog, their next project was a full-on Disney, hand-drawn, animated, musical version of Mort. And... I would have, and they would have thrown out a lot of the plot, because that's what Disney do. Mm. But I have no doubt that what what would have been at the end of it would have been brilliant, mm. and I'd really like to have seen it. And it, and it, the fact that it got scuppered for rights reasons, like. Massively annoys me. There's um, there was a Christmas card that got leaked from the people who were working on it, and it's a death uh, in the Hogfather costume. So I suspect that they were looking at combining elements of of Hogfather and more, at least maybe even Hogfather, Mort and Reaperman. But uh, I would love to have seen that. That it
2: would have been would have been so
1: that would have been mad, but it it could have been oh, so God. good because those I I'm. I'm a sucker for those films I mean, like Hercules, especially, I think is incredible. So it's a, master, <laughs> a <beautiful laughs> I, I'm guy. in the
2: exact same boat as you like I love those films. And I, I, I've laid after because re- um, I didn't actually know this until I read the book, what you, um, that there was going to be a Disney adaptation. And I was just lying awake thinking about what it could have been after I read that, because it was just so beautiful. I think you'd have to take, put your preconceptions of the novel aside
1: to watch it though because I, I think purists would have been livid because it, there's no because they, they would have butchered the
2: book but not necessarily but they would have butchered it in order to create a beautiful roast yeah <laughs> <laughs> it would have been great um, I wanted to ask have you read the um, there's a graphic novel I'm sure you've read it the graphic novel adaptation of Mort have you read that? Uh, Mort the big comic yes yes uh, Mort a Discworld big comic actually uh,
1: no oh really? I think I read it years and years ago but um I haven't read it recently. No. Oh, uh, it's which, uh, uh, yeah. I know. Bad biographer. I, uh, I mean, you've got but, the main stuff down. <laughs> there was so
2: much to read, guys. There was so much to <laughs> read. No judgment. No judgment. Fair <laughs> it just, it's 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 one of the ones that I remember picking up randomly in a secondhand shop, and I was like, "What's the oh?" My. And I didn't even know it existed at that point. So it's it's a really great adaptation. Um, which I mean, if, if you don't mind me asking, like, so Terry Pratchett had a lot of his work adapted like for um films there were uh albums as you talk about in the book uh there were video games well no films yet there there are no the
1: one thing we don't That's, have yet is a, a, a it's a movie based on a Pratchett book there's not there isn't one yet but yeah they're, they're pretty much every other art
2: form mm, do you have any um particular favorites anything that you thought was like a really fantastic adaptation they did a great job on uh
1: i thought good omens was really good I thought the, re- the recent Good Omens was great. I think it's the best version you could possibly make of Good Omens. What's interesting about it is, um, I think if it had a flaw, it's that uh, Neil made a point of writing something that was extremely faithful to the book. There's extra material in it, and a few bits are out, but basically it's the tone and feel of the book. And I almost feel like, because television and books are different mediums, and I almost feel like he possibly could have, could have been a little bit broader with it a little bit it could have have, um lent into the tv format a bit more and deviated from the book a bit more and there could have been more interesting things to do but it's the best if you were going to adapt good omens like it's the best possible version of it you could do and i i think it looks perfect i think the performances were perfect I, i i've watched it three times now i really really like it um so that's good i thought going Postal was really good I really enjoyed Skies Going Postal. I think they got the I think they got the feel of Ankh-Morpork really right. The casting was great. What's her name? Who played who played um Sir Crips-Lock? Oh, uh, Tasman Greek.
2: Tasman Greek. Perfect.
1: Like it's a small role, but how perfect is the casting of Tasman <laughs> Greek as 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 Miss Cripslock. Perfect. And the, yeah, so I thought there was some really good stuff in that. And Charles Dance as is like uh he basically is veterinary it's it's completely uh and didn't do that didn't make the 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 strange choice jeremy jeremy irons did in the color of magic where he um jeremy irons in the color of magic where he uses pratchett's accent to play lord veterinary which is a very strange choice (laughs) uses pratchett's speech impediment i didn't i thought hogfather was quite good as well i wasn't as keen on the color of magic Um, I thought David Jason was completely wrong for Rincewind. I think that's something a lot
2: of people agree on. I think he's quite good, I think, as Albert. Better suited, at least. Um, Much better suited, yeah. hmm. Perfect, in it? And he would have made a great dibbler, obviously. (laughs) Yeah, uh, in his his younger years, yeah.
1: (laughs) But then (laughs) Rincewind was based on was based on Rodney Trotter, uh, yeah. so like uh, it's, it's the wrong Trotter brother. Uh, that and it makes when you find that out, it makes perfect sense because that kind of hangdog sadness, like bleh, uh, kind of um, exasperation with the world thing that Rodney has in the early Only Fools and Horses, which was on telly when Terry was writing the code of magic. You can totally see where that came from. but Yeah, I thought, so I think those are good. There of the the audio the audio stuff. There's loads of the books have been made for the. B- Radio 4 have made loads of them. Um, and they're a mixed bag. Like, I don't really rate guards, the Radio 4 Guards, Guards or Witches Abroad. I do really like the version of Small Gods that, that was on Radio 4. And um, Nightwatch is pretty good as well. There's a good version of Nightwatch. But yeah, of, of, of the of the, of the stuff I've seen... Oh, actually, the one thing that get, never gets talked about anymore, um, Truckers, the, um, the Cosgrove Hall... Uh, a hand, hand animated version of Truckers is beautiful, so well done. Totally gets it, absolutely nails the tone of the book, um, and it's a it's probably the most successful. Actually, that version that I'm replacing my Good Omens answer with Truckers, the the animated Cosgrove Hall Truckers from 1992 is the most is the most successful adaptation so far of a Pratchett work.
2: I'm I'm glad you brought it up because uh, again, that's another thing that I wasn't aware even existed um, before I read about it in the book, and I was trying to find it because I love truck. I love the entire um, that entire trilogy. It's on the iTunes store. Thank you, thank you. Because I was about to ask, where can I find it? And I just, I hadn't checked there, so perfect. Thank you so much.
1: Although it's on the iTunes Store in the UK, that's all I can say for sure. I'll figure something but out. Don't worry. I'm sure you have. The, I'm sure you have ways and means. <laughs> I'll figure uh. something out.
0: But uh, the the section where you you talk about him uh, is kind of evolution towards acceptance in America. I found it interesting as I said we we've always made fun of the the really. Dreadful cover. Oh, the early covers up uh, awful. Oh, Gosh! Yeah, I mean, I say have the height of admiration for any US-based uh, Discworld readers who might be listening <laughs> to this, because they had to kind of overcome <laughs> any any yeah. initial like repugnance to those covers and just like plough on. Say, no, I, I I think there's something here, and and they, they, they found just a great book beneath. They,
1: they miss the point for people listening who've never seen them, which right? Cause I because Pratchett got big in in the US basically when they relaunched him with better covers but the first what six or seven Discworld novels which were which were released out of order and haphazardly uh, have these really awful generic fantasy covers that was the same people who were illustrating Robert Jordan novels and things like that like that they were basically fantasy or fantasy illustrators do it and like doing quite Literary, literally um, accurate versions of scenes but in a very soft, focused way or completely inaccurate. The one for Weird Sisters is absolutely bonkers. Like, none of the characters look right. Although, you know, that's also true of some of Josh Kirby's ones as <laughs> well. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, they're terrible. And uh, Terry always said that actually... The, 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 not only were they terrible, they weren't particularly well distributed. Because Terry always said that most of the people who came to signings when he would, when he did American conventions in those years uh, had the British editions of the books. Like they, they they, it was more common for him to see imported UK editions than it was to to see the, the editions that had been printed in the states. But
0: you quote that uh, really remarkable Joe Queenan in the New York Times review of Good Omens, which <laughs> seems to be like dripping with this Absolute. high-handed serpentine ang- yeah. <laughs>
1: evisceration.
0: Is that representative of just a wider, I don't know, like a a wider section of, of like, uh, American critics who just had this real dislike and reserve towards this particularly, seemingly, like, quintessentially British style of humour? Or or was he uh, alone there? Because it really struck me when I was reading that of this feels like what someone who has just heard of Terry Pratchett and doesn't like it, you know, doesn't like what they've heard would imagine his books are like rather than someone who's read them you know like uh, really relying on the surface level tongue-in-cheek humor he'd have and and sort of presenting it as if that's that's all that's there rather mm. than the you know like deeper ideas and um kind of you know the, his playfulness is sort of interwoven with his seriousness in a way but just that sort of dismissal of ah oh, it's just all these you know references and undergraduate humor really felt to me like this is i know representative of Whenever I've tried to win people over to Pratchett and they've got this initial reluctance based mm. on you know, what they've heard before, that's the kind of thing I encounter. So w- was that something that was common across the American press where they just pigeonholed him as he's this type of British author?
1: It's kind of worse than that in that the American press either ignored him or didn't know he existed. Like That good Omen's review is an outlier and I think if it wasn't for the fact that Neil Gaiman was really hip at the time, the, the Sandman series was kind of bringing about this renaissance in comic book culture and making and kind of the accepted graphic novel was a product of that era of the of the graphic novel being taken seriously and i think if it wasn't for neil gaiman's name attached to it the new york times wouldn't have touched it um so it's not so i i actually the so it's actually worse than than dismissing him is that the, is that like his publicist did such a bad job they very rarely got reviewed the people that did pay attention were in the niche were in the, the genre press they're in the the you know the fantasy and sci-fi magazines and they got it because they come from because they very much recognized one of their own somebody who because they got the references they understood it it was always weird, um, the American thing, because I think there was this belief amongst these publishers that it was just, just too English. Not just British, very specifically too English. And the American audiences wouldn't go for it. Whilst ignoring the fact that Australian audiences were fine with it, Czech audiences were fine with it. You know, it was like it, like Russian audiences were fine with it. Like Pratchett was big everywhere except America. And it took a while for somebody to go, "Hang on, Maybe it's not him, maybe it's us. <laughs> and like making that change. So it wasn't so much that he was despised or disliked, it was that he was ignored, and only people who were in the know knew about it. Only people who were in the know got it. And it, eventually then I think there was enough noise being made across the pond. and then there, there was a change in the team that around Terry's worker, Harper Collins. And eventually, it finally started to be taken seriously and and marketed in a different way, because yeah, those early those if you look at those early covers, those aren't those aren't books that are reviewed in the New York Times, like because the New York Times and the Washington Post and whichever you know heavyweight American newspaper with with critical heft you care to mention didn't review books like that. Fantasy always had that uh, that stigma to it, so. Yeah, it was it was just ignored. But that that uh, New York Times review is bizarre in how vitriolic it is. Which just it goes off and on one and doesn't just just talk about how he doesn't like Good Omens. It starts on uh, it starts on uh, Benny Hill and people from Liverpool. <laughs> it's <laughs> like basically just somebody who hates British stuff. <laughs> and you kind of like you know, and Good Omens was very successful in America, so it's so he was proven really wrong about it as well. Uh, it was just a really strange, really snobby attitude from somebody who considering how big monty python is in america for example like like which is you'd think is as british a sensibility as it comes when it comes to humor that monty python was always huge in the states so that's yeah it was just i think it was a lack of foresight based on certain people on certain things and a dismissive dismissiveness of the genre rather than of terry himself who i think that the 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 book editors barely knew existed Mm.
2: Um, where I am at the moment, um, I'm in Japan and I've been trying to pass on the books to like pretty much everyone I can. So um, a lot of people when they come here, like they've got very few like, you know, things at hand because, you know, they're moving halfway across the world or whatever. So anytime I finish Terry Pratchett book, I'll say, If you're looking for something to read, I've got some books and I'll just pass them on. So almost every pretty much everybody that I work with now is a Terry Pratchett fan because of that uh, determination, but it's interesting. Have you given them interesting times? Uh, I haven't actually, no, I've only been going, <laughs> <laughs> it'd be interesting to do all right, but <laughs> it's interesting like uh, how covers can actually um, have an impact on that. I, I'm not going to spoil uh, something that you talk about in your book. It's very interesting how covers are treated across Europe, uh, which I'm not going to spoil, particularly mm. in Germany, which I thought was really, really good, yeah. but um, in Japan, it's uh, unfortunately nobody here has heard of him because the Japanese covers of Terry Pratchett are literally just plain brown covers. They've got a silhouette of Great Atune and then just the title and that's literally it. So nobody has heard of them. I bought, uh, which two books did I get my hands on? I got Weird Sisters and I think it was Soul Music. No, that can't be right. That's the two adaptations. Weird Sisters and Mort. That was it. And I've given them to my school library in the hopes that like a student will check them out. I checked in again. No one has checked them out <laughs> since I've been there, but I did manage to convince two teachers there to um, take them out. So, I think the it, we can't underestimate how books are marketed as opposed to the actual quality of writers. You know, I think you're absolutely right there. And there's there's an interesting thing with the covers as well
1: because like those Josh Kirby covers became synonymous with with, with Terry's work. The um the Johnny Maxwell books and Good Omens didn't have Kirby covers because they wanted to have a different feel. They're not as fantasy, except in Germany, weirdly, where they, a place where they had, and as you see in the book, as you alluded to, but let's, I I won't spoil it, but where there's a a flagrant disregard for um, the details of the book and its relationship to the front cover, except in the cases of of the books that didn't have Josh Kirby covers, where they specifically Commissioned them. So only so the three Johnny e. Maxwell novels do have Josh Kirby covers in Germany and so does Good Omens. He did paint covers for all of them. But um like he was always fierce so fiercely loyal to, to Kirby because he felt that and he, and rightly, particularly with the early ones, that those covers had had a huge impact on uh, on his success and had kind of established a visual identity for the books, which he grew away from as it got as they went on. And I think when you get towards the end the, the end of the nineties those covers are not representative of uh, the books and it's a sad thing to admit because you know Kirby stopped drawing stopped drawing the covers because he died but the last one he did it Thief of Time I I you there's a real disconnect between the tone of the book and the tone of the cover and you can absolutely see why Terry wanted to bring in Paul Kidby to do the covers and I, I say this in the book that I wonder if it wouldn't have been too much longer before Kidby got the gig anyway because Terry's writing had moved away from that tone, but that there was, but he was also like extremely loyal. And Gollan's had actually tried to drop Josh Kirby several times, and they'd done audience testing where they'd uh, found a, the audiences didn't really respond to the front covers that they thought they were too fantasy, and they they and that's why that's why if you look at the first edition hardbacks for uh, '90s Discworld novels, the format changes a lot. It was Gollan's like experimenting with different ways of making the covers work that wouldn't put people off by the fantasiness of them i think mean, you know, there was a point there was one point where they were like just cutting out one element from it and putting it on a white background and then the next point they were using the whole wraparound cover that you'd use normally use for both sides of the book and and making a landscape picture that was banded between two blocks of color
0: yeah now they've got those uh posh hardback covers they're releasing all of them in mm. which yeah uh... Hopefully, we'll kind of overcome anyone's scruples about being seen reading something too fast. <laughs> yeah. Like. And towards the end, obviously, you talk a, a lot in very detailed and very moving fashion about Pratchett's battle with Alzheimer's and his efforts to raise awareness for it, and then, of course, um, raising awareness about uh, assisted suicides. Was that an area you were particularly concerned about? Is there a worry that, like, so, I suppose, so heavy a topic could come to dominate the book or dominate his, his legacy or your depiction of it?
1: I knew it had to be very carefully handled. I knew it had to be earned. That was the thing is that because um, I knew that actually there were two. I I wanted that that section of the book to be there was two things I wanted it to achieve. One is it had to be factually very accurate and very respectful of what happened, and very respectful of the science and the medical stuff. And secondly, I I wanted to, it to have emotional heft. And so some of the knockabout stuff does drop away at that point, but. As it should, and as it did, like, that's, it's, I think it's. I just wanted to reflect the tone of Terry's story, and it had to be true to that at any point. So the tone of Terry's story in the, in the late 80s and early 90s is of um, you know uh, somebody quipping their way around the world, riding this wave of ballooning fame, creating a persona, having a very light touch. The tone of the end of Terry's life is is of an angry dying man i had to make sure that that tone was represented so it was and it was difficult to write it was really hard to write so i just had to kind of keep in the headspace of it the documentaries he made were really useful for that like if you watch expecting to die the the documentary made about assisted dying like it's so moving and so serious uh that and I, i went back to it several times because it kept my head in the space of that subject and if you watch any footage of him, in, in particularly in the last few years of his life, it's really hard to watch because he, you see him reaching and grasping for words and you see a physical change in him. So I just wanted to make sure above anything else, it it just was accurate and respectful. It had to be and I hope the audience went with it. And I, I never worried me that it would be too bleak because because it, it just if I'd made light of it, it wouldn't it it would have been way more inappropriate uh, if i hadn't really t- i always felt that, it was a, that the, the 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 book, the book has a three act structure i knew from the word go that it was a three act structure that it was the story of somebody growing up finding their skill finding their talent becoming and um, becoming well known for it and then act 1 essentially ends with terry giving up his full time giving up job his job to write full time the middle act is Somebody becoming very famous and very wealthy, and um, gradually increasing in credibility and popularity. That was the hardest bit to write. Actually, that was that was much harder than the end, uh, because it's basically a bloke sat in a shit, sat in his house writing for twenty years. That's difficult to make interesting. But the last, the last act of his life, that that's incontrovertible. It's there. I couldn't, I couldn't do anything except rep- represent it accurately, because it wouldn't be true to what I was trying to do. Um, and also from a writer's point of view it's it's compelling it's a compelling story and i I didn't and i I had to do it justice and i just had to hope that by the time you get to that bit as a reader i've earned the right to break your heart a little bit by taking you on the journey through all the the other stuff and i hope i pulled it off and i hope the tone i was worried that the shift in tone would be too abrupt so i was very conscious of trying to but again terry's life does the work for you because there isn't an abrupt shift in tone in his life it is a gradual change so it's i just had to stay true to the tone and the beats of the story of his life and and make sure that i i, I did it accurately
0: yeah well I, I think we both agree that you you've very much done a terrific job on a very difficult uh, subject So ultimately, having having written the book, having spent a a year of your life, you know, working and researching and writing and and rewriting, why is Terry Pratchett important? What is his legacy? You're as as well placed to to say this as, as anyone.
1: There's a few different levels to this to that answer. Firstly, what an amazing fucking writer. And that that will be the legacy that he'd want. Like what an incredible writer, and that that's that's why he's important. In that, not because he popularized the fantasy genre, not because he basically single-handedly invented the genre of comic fantasy, even though it existed before, and um, made it a mainstream industry in the in the mid '90s for a while. Not because he was somebody who fought for people's rights um, and their dignity at the end of his life. I think the thing he'd want to be remembered for is that he was a fantastic author that he wrote really good books and he wrote loads of them <laughs> like loads i don't know if you've noticed there are <laughs> yeah. loads of them
2: we um, we've noticed, noticed. <laughs> <Exactly. Full> 60 <laughs> there are exact
1: if you count the unadulterated the unadulterated cat there are uh, and the co- the books he co-wrote there are exactly 60 books um as in full novels but i think so i think his main his main epitaph is that You know, is that he was he wrote really really funny and then gradually important, interesting work, interesting books. I think you can't divorce him from his work around Alzheimer's as well because it made a palpable difference. Like he left the he went out of the world and left it changed, partly because of his writing. But at the end of the end of his life, he like literally affected the perception of Alzheimer's disease in the country in the way that happens very very rarely when somebody very high profile and well loved is associated with an illness it can change the perception of that illness and he did that and i don't think he would see he'd want that to be his main legacy but i also think he was aware that in practical terms it probably was i i think also his legacy is in his prescience if you read Nightwatch and look at what ha- what's happened in the news in the last few weeks like the the way he talks about mobs and protests and riots is exa- and and then look at what and then take that to the streets of um the streets of new york it's the same it's exactly right he he was his prescience and his intelligence was was remarkable the thing the bill gates thing the thing where he predicted that the internet would be used to propagate like fake news as we now call it Um, you know to propagate like illegitimate study and pass it off as legitimate real as legitimate legitimate fact he saw that coming in 1996 like he knew that was going to happen so i I think his his prescience and then finally the thing i think is mm, that is most central to his work and that i think is his biggest should be is the biggest impact he has on his readers if not the outside world or his perception but the people who've read the work is this absolute moral core this this core of dignity of decency like he was such a decent moral writer like. Right? and the moral lessons of those books use your common sense rely on each other run away if you're in trouble <laughs> Like, like rely on intelligence before you rely on bravery, but then, but then fall back on bravery when you need to. Like, <laughs> he's be sensible, treat people as you would expect to be treated, be excellent to each other. That is the central thematic core of of his entire body of work, and that is as much of a, <laughs> as much of an epitaph as as anything. Yeah. So I don't know what the central thing is that he's left for the world or that is defines the perception of him, but a. Fantastic writer with a strong moral core who wrote brilliant jokes is um, probably the thing that he'd want. Beautifully.
2: Absolutely.
0: Good. And if you want to hear uh, those beautifully articulated thoughts about Terry Pratchett at greater length, you should read *The Magic of Terry Pratchett*, which is available July twentieth. Is it Mark or July thirtieth?
1: July 30th July 30th um, you can buy especially uh, i got to plug my oh, special because I've got 550 books turning up mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, yeah you can buy you can get it on all of the usual places Amazon and that and hopefully in bookshops although I don't no i think book bookshops will be open so i'm hoping that my book will end up in some bookshops i literally no idea because that's what the publishers do and I, I have no impact over it but um the one place you certainly can buy it is from www.askmeaboutterrypratchett.com which is the website i set up to sell the copies that i'm flogging <laughs> essentially out the back a very of a dibbler-esque van. approach <laughs> <laughs> because if you want some it really is uh, it's it's £16.50 for a signed edition and that's putting <laughs> me own throat. <laughs> Box sets packed with fresh air. Um, but there's I've, I've put together some quite cool like sexy special editions with badges and and, and extra and extra material and things like that and uh, yeah so th- those are really cool but you can you can get it anywhere I just don't want people to read it essentially. Uh, if you spot any typos by the way or any mistakes whatsoever um, <laughs> then you're absolutely welcome and I urge Perfect. you never to tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to email me especially you just well, don't on that note
2: i think mark you have been an absolute pleasure to talk to this was an absolute dynamite read and i would highly highly recommend any of our listeners and anyone at all to read it it's a great chuckle really interesting work and like it's just lots of great discoveries that you'll find about your favorite author and ours mr or sir terry pratchett to give him his proper title and yeah i just um i hope we can have you on the show again at some stage when you write the next one <laughs> i mean i don't want to i don't want to spoil it but the,
1: my next book probably isn't going to be about <laughs> terry pratchett i kind of feel like there's, there's not much else there's not much more story
0: That's <laughs> <As we laughs> reached a rather rather definitive end but yeah mark this uh the book was was terrific i mean thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to, to read before it comes out i would urge I, I, I can say 100% sincerely that uh, I think everyone who listens to this podcast would really enjoy the book so July 30th find it as, as Mark's saying and ask me about Terry Pratchett you can follow Mark on Twitter at 20th Century Mark, that's uh, Mark with a C presumably the uh, prefix is a Tritonata T-Rex uh, which I very much <laughs> <It> appreciate <is. laughs>
1: that's That's 20th 000, zero, century go. Mark I was named after ah, Mark Boland fantastic. there you go bonus yeah. bonus Mark facts um,
0: well on that note yeah listeners uh, do look out for this one and, and pick it up when it arrives it's absolutely fantastic and Mark you have been fantastic thank you so much for speaking to us
1: thanks for having me this has been really fun I really liked it and I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll gladly come on and nerd out about Pratchett Books anytime you like funky so.
0: well on that note listeners farewell we shall see you next time when we look at Wintersmith Bye now. take it easy